Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. Yes, Helen is on holiday, but in an exciting jam-packed episode, we've got... Labour's Brexit policy. Looking back at the election a year on. And crumbling Britain, are potholes political. And keep an eye out, or an ear out, at the end of the programme for a special snippet of our culture podcast, The Back Half. Hello. If you are already behind the NS paywall, you will be listening to this on Wednesday evening, hours after we've gone to press, gone to gone to Audible, gone to... Please gone to do send waves. your suggestions for what the, uh, the podcast equivalent of going to press is. And you also get a new Sunday newsletter from me in which I look, look forward to the week ahead. There's a little bit of culture in it, a little bit of what we're listening to. There's... And it's two exclusive subscriber-only playlists of what people in the NS are listening to. And there will also be a restaurant review. I'm going to start reviewing a restaurant every week. And also, because I want to get out of London for this, if you, you know, live not in London, I'm sorry. But also <laughs> do, 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 let, yeah, do recommend places I, I should go. Yeah, it's a really fun thing. And, of course, you also get everything on the website the magazine in advance of it hitting newsstands on Wednesday evening. And if you go to uh, newstatesman.com forward slash NS subscribers on Wednesday evening, you will get the early episode there. If you are not a subscriber and you go to that address, I assume a pop-up will appear going, oi mate, what are you doing? And if you click on it to sign up, then our clever software will know that you've signed up to listen to the New Statesman podcast and I will be able to buy a gold jacuzzi. <laughs> uh, so you should do that. On the subject of gold jacuzzis, I don't know how this EEA segue is going to work. <laughs> I have not thought this through. But on the subject of gold, oh no, on the subject of gold jacuzzis, something we would all like, but we're not going to have, is Britain going into the? <laughs> <laughs> European, you saved it. European, what a segue <laughs> into the European economic area. Um, so could you just briefly go through? What is happening next Tuesday in the House of Commons? 
and what Labour's new amendment slash position is. Yeah, sure. So um, we're going to see the sort of crunch votes on the withdrawal bill. And obviously, we've had the House of Lords amendments um, that have been that have defeated the government and are now going back to the Commons for the MPs to vote on them. Now, one of these is keeping Britain in a European economic area. Um, so a sort of Norway style arrangement with the EU. All the remainers among uh, MPs and others are very enthusiastic about this option, but it doesn't look like there's a majority in the Commons to pass it. So there's a lot of Labour MPs who are angry with their leadership for not backing this option um, and making it Labour's policy and trying to defeat the government on this in the Commons. Instead, the Labour front bench has just announced a new amendment keeping Britain in the European Union's internal market, but not going so far as the Lord's Amendment. Uh, to keep the UK and the EEA. That's where we're at. Lots of people are saying this, it looks like Labour's completely softened its Brexit stance, but uh, you have a different um, interpretation of what this move means, don't you, Stephen? Yes, I mean, if you want to understand some of the policy undercurrents, you should read the IPPR's shared market report, which this bears, uh, you know, it's not its own influence, but this very much does bear the the imprint of, of that report. So it's two things. It's a change of emphasis, but it actually really reiterates Labour's existing position, which is full tariff-free, frictionless access with rule sharing and within the rules-based architecture. There are specific opt-outs Labour wants from the European Court of Justice, which are part of why they don't want to be in the why the leadership doesn't want to be in the EEA. All right, there are basically three. Oh, it's that moment on a podcast where I commit to a numbered list. Three objections the leader's office has. The first, there are specific things about uh, about the they don't want to be a rule taker, not a rule maker. Now, one of the things I am reluctantly forced to agree with both Theresa May and the leader's office about is that they are right a in terms of the referendum, but b in terms of the United Kingdom's sense of itself. Uh, Politico's Jack Blanchard, uh, author of Westminster's second best uh, morning email. (laughs) I mean, actually, who am I kidding? It's, it's so good. Uh, but mine is better and you should subscribe. Uh, but Dio did this great in conversation with the Norwegian prime minister. And she basically said, well, yeah, it's frustrating not being at the, you know, the, the, the top table with negotiations, but you've got to put businesses and family first. Now, I agree with that sentiment, but the ultimately for the United Kingdom as a polity to be able to accept that long term, that would require a very profound and radical shift both in how British politicians see Britain in the world and also uh, how uh, British voters see Britain in the world and I think those I think maybe one of those things might happen but I think it's highly unlikely that both of those Mm -hmm. uh, things will happen. The second problem is uh, freedom of movement. Now obviously no one in Jeremy Corbyn's office uh, or indeed that call for uh, John Trickett, John McDonnell and Diane Abbott uh, is particularly fussed by the free movement of people. However, they are all aware that the opposition to free movement of people was a key part of the referendum. And you can't be in the EEA uh, and have the free and have, and be out of the free movement of people. So from that, that perspective, it's nothing doing. And the third objection to the EEA is that the EEA has specific uh, opt-outs for Norway's economic model and Norway's political. They, you know, the leader's office belief is that they, that while an EEA type arrangement is a good destination, uh, it should not be the EEA. Now, you can, in my view, fairly and correctly uh, say that the things the leader's office are asking for uh, and the thing, the thing that somebody's asking for in, in an internal market 
are things that are less acceptable to the EU as it currently is constituted and the politics of those of the uh, individual member states than they were when Norway negotiated the EEA. Partly because there's a big difference between a country that, um, so in Norway, the, the political class wanted to go in, they were rejected in a referendum. And basically what happened was, is the Norwegian political class went, could you make something for us than is basically EU membership? Um, there was just, there's a lot more goodwill towards a country which wants to get closer but can't than a country which wants to move uh, further away and has had a conservative government having a kind of weird, you know, existential, maybe with a max fax, maybe mm-hmm. with a, what the, ever the other one is. And so there are just lots of different, there are lots and lots of reasons why I don't think um, what they what they want to do is achievable. However, there's also a tactical thing here, which is to find a way to kill the EEA amendment. You mind just talking us through what the EEA amendment is? Yeah, so the EEA amendment, um, it had a majority in the Lords, and so it passed. And so that was another yet another defeat for the government there. Um, and MPs who are in favour of a softer Brexit um, looked at that and thought, if only we could replicate that in the Commons. But there, but there isn't a majority there, as, as we've both of us, I think, have written before. So the Labour front bench doesn't want it. A lot of backbenchers don't want it. And um, it's the same on the government side as well. Um, and so there's not really, it, I mean, I, I don't know why there's such a fixation on this, because that there's not a way that it would pass. Yeah. So one of the weird things when I send out my key morning email is um, whenever I say, and again, as we, we've both written, I think probably more times than either of us want to think about, that the number of Labour MPs who will vote against keeping us in the EEA, regardless of what the Labour whip is, is larger than the number, well, it's not larger than the number of Tory rebels, but seeing as you need to net have seven Tory rebels to defeat the government, at the moment there are 12 signatories to uh, the EEA, 12 Tory signatories to the cross-party EEA amendment. Well, the bad news is there are more than seven Labour MPs, there's the seven Labour leavers, there's Caroline Flint, there's John Speller, uh, and there are other other sort of people who have not, you know, put themselves about as much. But there are that yeah, there are already so it's one of the Yeah, those... so Labour MPs who aren't necessarily Eurosceptics but can't commit the UK into an agreement that would mean free movement because they live in constituencies where that that wouldn't be countenance. Yeah, and I think the thing I find bizarre about it is every time I write this. I get at least one angry text or message back from a pro-European Labour MP saying this is not true. However, the other thing which happens is I get three texts back from other Labour MPs going, <laughs> either going, yeah, I'm not voting for the EEA. Are you on glue? Um, or, I'd like to make it clear, I'm paraphrasing, no Labour MP has ever asked if other Labour MPs are on glue, to my knowledge. Um <laughs> Or, and all you then get people, you know, kind of sort of Keir Starmer's supporters club within the Tribune group of MPs who, uh, with a couple of exceptions, I think, think Keir is doing a great job in very difficult circumstances, who are you know, saying, yeah, this is exactly right. Keir is, is managing a lot of different um, sort of groupings within both the front bench and the back benches very well. I think Corbyn's a bit of a crutch for um, pro-European people on the centre-left. I mean, Partly because it is quite easy, candidly, I'll front up, I think it is a lot easier for me to countenance as an idea, oh, well, just get rid of Corbyn and have, you know, a, someone who, who cries whenever Ode to Joy plays as, as leader of the Labour Party. Um, of happiness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not like Corbyn crying. <laughs> um, 
and that's that's easy for me because it's not ideologically uncomfortable as a solution. I don't um, I don't particularly think like oh well I worry I'd have to say goodbye to the things about uh, Corbyn's platform that I like. I think I'd be able to keep those, and it, it doesn't doesn't bother me. And I think that is where most centre left remainers are. However, it doesn't actually fix the problem, and it's a much more uncomfortable question to go well. What are you going to do about Caroline Flint then? What are you going to do about John Speller? What are you going to do about, yeah, well, yeah, what, what is your plan to stop these other people rebelling? Not least, of course, the other thing it forgets is if you have no Corbyn, uh, then you have someone who can, who, yeah, although Corbyn is not particularly pro-European now, his position is a lot more pro-European than it would otherwise be because he wants to defeat the government in the House of Commons, right? Um, and the whole thing... Yeah, we I mean, we were talking about it beforehand because I'm starting. I'm weirdly I'm starting to think maybe I'm going mad because I cannot work out why why people think the the EA amendment can pass. Right, it just it can't. Like you cannot get to 325 names. No, I can't see it happening. I suppose what those MPs who do argue that would would say is if Jeremy Corbyn took this as an option as uh, you know and we did have people like um Tom Watson deputy leader fairly recently saying it was still on the table and you know they might have thought that that was an opportunity and that if the leader's office did go for that then other labor MPs who might have been on the fence would follow suit so i can see that they thought that Jeremy Corbyn could be a sort of master of that destiny um but actually i do think a lot of the complaints about him from from MPs who oppose him is that he's not properly opposing the government whereas he is you know He's making these amendments to make life difficult for them. So, so he is doing that job. Yeah, I think this. I think a lot of the time, I think there are two reasons why people say they don't understand uh, Labour's Brexit uh, strategy. One is, in some, in the cases of some journalists, they just do not seem to talk to the leaders' office very often. But I think the second is a lot of the time people are. I don't think they're doing this consciously, but I think subconsciously, what they're doing is they mean they don't like the destination of the strategy. Right, the strategy is bluntly to defeat the government wherever possible, hold on to as many um, uh, people who want to reverse the referendum result as electorally uh, possible, not lose any of their lead voters and end up with a form of Brexit that does not impede any of the policy aspirations of the Labour leadership. And bluntly, on, on that metric, Corbyn is playing a blinder. Unfortunately for me, I like the single market. I like the rule-based architecture of the EU. There are obviously things about it which are uh, suboptimal and I would like to be changed, but I would prefer the EU, to, the, the UK to be a fully participant uh, member of the European project. However, Corbyn doesn't want that and he is doing, I do think weirdly, he's slightly helped by the fact a lot of the coverage of him is, oh, this old duffer has come up with a, a nonsense policy. And that means that the question becomes Corbyn, duffer, YM. Whereas if he was being covered in the way that, say, Gordon Brown's tests for the euro, where basically everyone went, ah, this is designed to uh, both to frustrate joining the euro if the Treasury doesn't want to, but to facilitate it should, for some reason or another, those circumstances change. I think if Corbyn was um, being primarily covered through that lens, I don't think uh, the game he's playing would be as effective. Of course, you can only beat what's in front of you and you can only uh, have a strategy for the media coverage you, in fact, get. But I do think that that's probably part of why it works for him. Yeah, and you could see from from even the front pages of today's papers, as you mentioned in Morning Call, it was on the front of The Guardian and the front of The Times, Jeremy Corbyn uh, softens Labour's stance on Brexit. 
Whereas it wasn't on the front of any of the other papers that might be more antagonistic towards that position. So clearly, you know, the voters who want to see Jeremy Corbyn as more Europhile than he is, um, see those headlines. And then the others don't really see what he's doing. Or like you say, they, they, they hear, oh, Europe thinks that this is a nonsense and you're just trying to have your cake and eat it, which they, you know, which they think all of our politicians are doing anyway. Yeah. And I think one of the other, the, the question I do have about it, right, is it feels to me likely Labour will successfully defeat the government on the meaningful vote amendment, which is to have, you know, so obviously at the moment there's a commitment to a meaningful vote, but the meaningful vote as it's currently existed is actually a pretty meaningless vote. Yeah, the meaningful vote commitment yeah. is a meaningless commitment. Yeah, because <laughs> at the moment the meaningful vote, basically the government could go our deal or the cliff, which is obviously not a meaningful uh, decision. The meaningful vote amendment, and I think on the whole, Kirsten Armas done a very good job in what is actually quite a difficult job, but the meaningful vote amendment is a little bit Keir Starmer realising that he cocked up pretty badly with the meaningful vote and Labour effectively going back like, control Z, control Z, <laughs> to make it an actually meaningful vote, which means the government can't go, which is it, the deal or the cliff. Yeah, yeah. So the, and that's going to, I think that has a very good chance yeah, of, of coming off. I think that that will uh, that will come off for them. And I think the customs union will come off for them. And it is very easy to see a situation where, as a result of those votes, we end up in a, another election situation. Now, the question I then have uh, for the Labour Party is, one, whether or not this clever internal market fudge, which has the joy of being something that caps the number of EEA rebels of that core 50 uh, of people who slightly unfairly because of the actions of one or two people in that group, Chris Leslie, uh, John Woodcock, uh, have become seen as just difficult customers. It caps that rebellion at 50. However, and it, it's something which if you're Caroline Flint or John Mann, you can broadly say you're, you're into as well, right? It unites the various tribes of, of the PLP. Can it unite the various tribes of the PLP in an early election? Well, that's a lot more difficult. And what does it actually mean in practice if, let's say we do have an election in November 2018, Labour gains 15 more seats, Lib Dems gain six more seats. Um, by the way, I'm talking about Labour gains in England, and then the SNP maybe lose another six seats to various parties. Well, weirdly, at that point, um, I think the leadership has a problem in that they don't want the EEA, but given that time will be running out, I think they will at that point probably have to go, the government's messed it up, here's an off-the-shelf model, I hear the EEA is lovely at this time of year. So, <laughs> so, so the, the, the question I sort of still have, and I think the more interesting one than, you know, why, are, why isn't he trying to, do, to win a vote? He doesn't want to win and he can't win, is... Rather like Keir Starmer's six tests, which were a brilliant form of words to get them through one crisis, but have now become this albatross because the six tests don't mean anything, is what happens if the gambit to force an early election works? Yeah, because you can't go into to an election with this fudge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it just would would break down. And also, I think it will have been proved um, when they put this amendment to Parliament because there's no Tories who are going to vote with this with this Labour amendment. It's going to be proved to have been a a sort of nonsense, isn't it? By by the time of of another election. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think the thing is 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 that Labour have got the advantage of, of two um, very strong brands that they're leveraging on this. The first is the overall Labour Party brand, which is you know nice but a bit soft. Which means that actually, although it rightly annoys any you know any 
any EU wonk, regardless of whether or not they are pro or anti-EU wonk, that they are basically going, you know what we'd be like, Tory position, but nicer. That is a sensible place for a Labour opposition to be because people believe that about the Labour Party. The second thing is because for most Remainers, I think Remain is actually about social liberalism, openness, yada, 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 all of which are things that to most social liberals Corbyn has in spades. Mm-hmm. And so they are successfully leveraging the success of their leader's brand and the success of the party brand to have this, this cake and eat it uh, position. I think the, the difficulty, and maybe this is where I'm wrong about it not lasting through the heat of an election campaign, is my assumption is that the next election, there will be more questions of a when you are prime minister, what will you know, what will X mean? Mm. And not like, oh, this old tramp wandering around the country. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he'll be treated unlike the previous election, yeah. he'll be treated more as a potential prime minister. Yeah, and that does make it harder to leverage the strength of uh of the Labour brand uh in the way that they're doing very effectively now. But the thing is, I say that that will happen, but weirdly. I feel like people aren't uh, taking Corbyn seriously yet, which is one of the things I did kind of think would happen after the June 2017 election, but it doesn't actually feel to me like that is happening. Am I being unfair? No, I mean, we'll, we'll come to that in our You Ask Us segment, which will be looking back at that election. But I do agree with you. I think that even the fact that we've um, had this whole conversation about why Jeremy Corbyn isn't backing the UK to be in the EEA you know, even that suggests that there's a level of not taking what he believes and and how how he does politics seriously. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Indeed, it is. uh, Well, it isn't when we record and it actually won't be when you listen to this, whether you are a paywall subscriber getting it this afternoon or you are a regular uh, podcast listener getting it uh, after after Thursday at noon. But it will be the anniversary on Friday morning when you know, those of you who just listened to it in your own sweet time, who disgust me, disgust me here. Uh, no, we love all of you, even in our long tail. Uh, we'll be listening to it with the, the first anniversary of the 2017 general election. And we've got a lot of interesting questions about it, which I'm going to kind of wrap into a sort of micro one, which is looking back at that election, one, basically, one, what do you, th- what do you think the kind of causes of that result were? Has the way you feel about that changed? And um, what about the last year has surprised you? Yeah, well, I think one of the main narratives um, after the election was was one about how austerity was has got has gone too far. Even among Tory voices, they were all saying this, weren't they? And then, of course, you had the um, Grenfell fire soon after the election result that 
in in the sort of narrative way that we cover politics, which is probably a bit glib, it kind of compounded that that um, that reaction to the election result. Um, I've been surprised because I've been doing a lot of reporting since then about how little actually the Conservatives have done to try and mitigate what many of them see as that as the problem. Um, obviously, you do have Jeremy Hunt pushing for more money for the NHS, and it looks like that that's going to happen. Um, but I think. In terms of the smaller things, um, in terms of things that affect people's everyday lives, there haven't been any sort of new funds released or any particularly um, sort of uh, anything with particular integrity in terms of putting more money into social housing, etc. Yeah, I think one of the yeah, yeah, I think the biggest surprise to me is I think um, yeah, in the in the terms of the year gone, isn't there? Very rapidly was a kind of. Yeah, a lot of talk on the Tory party about need to learn the lessons, yada, yada, yada. And there was an awful lot of, and I do think this is true, right, that austerity is politically supportable and very successful when you're going, some people, not mm. you, but some people are going to have to suffer, uh, but it will be worth it in the end. People quite like that as a message uh, and they believe it because it buys into, you know, in terms of how the, a, a household manages yeah. money, right, it, it's intuitively correct. The problem is, is that the other people, the other people having bad things happen to them, there are no, there are no cuts of that kind left. You can only start cutting into uh, the Tory electoral base and and to into swing voters. Yeah, and even the cuts which don't affect those people directly, uh, as you know, you as everyone sees when they wonder, uh, you know, when they go about their own neighbourhood, and you must see even more starkly when you're out uh, reporting on it. Is you know. We all see homelessness in every city centre. We all see, uh, you know, as we will discuss in the next bit, yeah. potholes. We, you know, and and that kind of tattiness of the public realm. I similarly did think that um, the Conservative Party would have got into. I mean, not even necessarily the correct response on that, right? Because there are sort of two schools of thoughts. There's the kind of we stopped making the argument for cuts. But we're still doing them. Yeah, but we're still doing them and we need to make the argument for them. And there was the, we've cut the bits that are politically survivable and we just need to stop with that now. Yeah, yeah. And weirdly, neither of those, not only has neither side won, that battle hasn't really happened. I guess partly because while Theresa May remains in place, they are ossified. That's been a surprise to me. And the other surprise to me is shortly after the election, uh, I'm not sure if uh, as much as, you know, obviously I love them to pieces because I'm, you know, well, wet Blairite liberal etc etc um I'm not sure if Nick Clegg is a name to drop anymore but um the thing that Nick Clegg said afterwards which has really stayed with me is he said to me like yeah in this in this election Corbyn had a great deal of abuse Mm. and very little scrutiny now he's going to be taken seriously he's going to be abused less scrutinized a lot more that's a very different challenge whether or not he can do it who knows now I really thought that was correct Mm. uh than there would be considerably less uh of the kind of like um and the thing is i can feel that uh some of our corbyn skeptic listeners are going are already going to start angrily tweeting me oh but but it's not abuse it's true the thing is is that it's not about whether it's true or false people switch off when they feel that the complaint is an insult Mm. and he's friends with the west enemies is, is an insult it's not an argument right that that is what most voters think when they hear those things. I mean, to wow, I really am leaning in to my, how horrendously right-wing I am this episode, aren't I? But um, in in Blair's biography, uh, he there's a whole bit where he talks about, you know, 
the insults that really damaged his opponents were not ones like, oh, you know, he's dangerous, oh, he's going to sell things off. It was, you know, William Hague, you know, he's good at, you know, tells good jokes, but he's not very good at, you know, judgment or, you know, and doesn't have any actual plans. You know, Michael Howard's ideas from, you know, a bit out of touch. You know, like those smaller criticisms that don't feel like the kind of thing a political partisan would say are just a lot more damaging. But weirdly, that hasn't happened. People still do cover Corbyn. And then, of course, there is just the straightforward abuse of covering him like he's kind of some weird duffer who um, floats around not knowing what he's doing. I mean, I don't know if you saw the Tracy Ullman sketch. Oh, yeah. 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 Now, I think in a weird thing, the the rancid racism that Matt uh, provoked in some quarters has weirdly rescued the fact that the show was appalling. Uh, (laughs) Because I I feel that a lot of the reviews afterwards, uh, people felt a lot more inclined that you couldn't go, I mean, it was awful, because you had to go, for understandable reasons, look at these abhorrent responses to it. Mm. But it is completely wrong to see Corbyn as a man who is ashamed of his historical associations, ashamed of the people he's allied with. He has an incredible fealty and loyalty to the people he's allied with um which is why he doesn't want to abandon them or or let go of things he has an incredible sense of uh of of personal loyalty but that i suppose would would hammer this idea people have of you know his critics seem to have him as a a bit of an old duffer and i think that's been a surprise to me yeah i I, i've felt that's been surprising and sort of any excuse to say oh look he doesn't actually believe in insert x here of what i believe in has has returned i think it it went went quite a bit and there was a bit more sort of um normal coverage of him after the election immediately after the election but the moment that sort of brexit came back onto the agenda and labor had to start making decisions again anyone who maybe doesn't particularly care that much about the intricacies of our future relationship with the eu but really doesn't like jeremy corbyn was using him as as a crutch as you as you put it um previously um and so i've been surprised that that that's it's slipped into that kind of coverage um so quickly again what's your sort of provisional hypothesis about what happened in june last year oh that's a good question um i think that potentially it's it's a big part of what um nick Clegg you said nick Clegg said to you um about jeremy corbyn merely getting abuse and, and not scrutiny um we didn't really know much about what he stood for because so few of his policies were really being um, covered prior to the election campaign. And then as soon as he, he was on the road giving television interviews, but not much else. Um, and you could see as well during election campaigns, the sort of problems in the swing seats that he was going to, you realize that actually he did have, have some answers in that manifesto that were really appealing to people. And I think that's what, there were a lot of people who were on the fence. And I think that's what changed people's minds about him at the last minute. That, that's my analysis. Um, I had to do a piece, I think, um, just after the election on the manifesto and how it affected uh, people on the doorstep. Um, and that seemed to be a really big factor in it. People were on the fence until it came out. Yeah. I do think that was uh, a big part of it. I think the thing that it's very easy for us to uh, forget is then as and as much as you know, there's something you know, but you still, every time I say it, I feel crazy saying it. Um most people did not know much about Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn mm. in June 2017. They knew that she seemed like a, a kind of lady who was fairly on it, mm. who'd backed Remain and now was implementing Brexit. And people liked that because they thought each other. Steady hands. Yeah, they didn't really know um, anything 
about her. And ditto, they knew that like Labour was led by this like old guy who wasn't like previous Labour leaders and Labour was quite divided, but they again didn't really know why. Yeah. And the Conservatives stood off, kind of convinced that the case against Corbyn had already been made. Corbyn had a brilliant campaign for video, a brilliant campaign for social media. You had the effects of, of you know, almost a decade of public uh, spending being pared back. And you had a manifesto with a number of very popular elements. I kind of think that was what caused it. I think the fascinating thing about the next election is that I think those two things are kind of going to come in. Well, one, people now know who the two candidates are. The risk for the Tories is if they have a change, they have someone, you know, I think it's easy to forget, not least because she handled the campaign so well, their next leader could still be worse than Theresa May from an uh, electorate-facing perspective. Um, but, you know, is Corbyn going to have, um, he's not going to have the kind of ability to introduce himself to people again. People now know who he is. Um, however, the policy reason why he did well, uh, fatigue with austerity, looks like it's going to get more acute. Uh, but the Conservative campaign will probably not be as dire as the last one. So I think you've got two kind of quite interesting forces pushing against each other whenever it happens. Yeah, and I and I do think that it, they that the Conservatives could suffer a more acute problem than they did in the last election, that they won't have the numbers of people that Labour have going out and about canvassing or, you know, working on their social media output or, or even just their outriders, you know, people who aren't actually officially affiliated to the party, but doing a lot of work to get their message out there. They're going to have even fewer of those people, even if they do have the policies that appeal more to young people than they did in their previous manifesto, because they don't have those young people. I mean, I remember doing a piece about the Tory membership crisis and someone was saying, of the 10 people who bothered to turn up on your canvas, you know, two out of 10 of them will be <laughs> will be dead by the next election. Um, and, and they haven't shown much sign of um, changing that. They do have a sort of momentum parallel uh, organisation called Activate, but I don't think that it's got nearly uh, as much of the numbers that momentum has and it doesn't see, it didn't take off. Um, and so I haven't seen, I haven't seen that infrastructure change yet. And if there is an early election, then it certainly, certainly won't have changed. And I don't see how you can build that kind of support by the next election. So, Anoush, you have just got back from being on the road reporting in Banbury. Yes. Um, so Banbury is a sort of commuter belt area um, in Oxfordshire. And, you know, there are signs that lead you to Chipping Norton there. So it's not exactly um, uh, Labour territory, let's say. Um, but yes, I went there to go and report on the pothole problem that has been plaguing the country for the past most people will say the past five years has become really acute. Um, and you now have instances where cyclists have been dying as a result of potholes in our roads that they haven't seen and that have meant, made, meant that they've fallen into traffic um, or they've broken their backs, uh, as someone recently did. Um, and so it's really becoming a sort of human problem as well as a problem for motorists and insurance companies. And so that's part of this new series that we're doing in the magazine that I'm sure you, the listeners, have, have been reading or at least have heard about um, called Crumbling Britain, which is just trying to find the effects of austerity on day-to-day -day life. And certainly I saw the effects of potholes on people's day-to-day -day life in Banbury because I was basically bouncing up and down in the car that was taking me around, feeling very carsick by the end of it. So the problem here is that there's just been a 
complete underinvestment in our roads um, for so long and that it's a very difficult thing to suddenly find a quick fix to because um, the roads are 60, 70 years old and roads only usually last about 10, 20 years. Um, so in your role as sort of crumbling correspondent, <laughs> as you say, Banbury is is somewhere which has pretty steadily re-elected the Conservative yeah. Party. You know, do people, when you're talking to people, do people make the connection between the fact that the roads are in a bad state and the economic policy choices made under the Conservative and Coalition government? Uh, or or do uh, do they, you know, is it kind of, are the potholes treated like the weather? So, so this is a big, this is, that's a great question because this is a big part of this series is that I'm trying not to ask people, you know, is that because of the wicked Tories? I just want to hear what people say is a problem and say they think the reason for the problem is and it does always come back to the funding you know it wasn't like this 10 years ago they don't necessarily link it to the government I mean I've spoken to in previous pieces including in Somerset I've spoken to mainly Tory voters and um, Tory councillors and town councillors but they will still say this is a problem of funding that has that has started manifesting itself in the past 10 or five years and what's that that's that's a result of austerity and so the person who was driving me around Banbury yesterday Mr Pothole is his name locally um, he was saying look He's an independent person. He doesn't have a party affiliation. He was saying, look, potholes aren't political. They just need to be fixed. But then as we continued our conversation, it became increasingly clear that not only was it a lack of government funding to local councils that was causing this problem, which you know has gone massively down under the Conservatives and the coalition previously, um, but it's also a result of private money coming into our road upkeep. So Um, councils will hire contractors and the contractors won't have enough um, people supervising what they do. And of course, it's all about the bottom line for them rather than public service. And so those two things are are actually quite sort of left-wing arguments, but they're not given by left-wing people. It's odd. Yeah, that was a very well answered, particularly seeing as I started gurning at you in this pained way when he was like, potholes aren't political. (laughs) He's one of those things, whenever you do vox pop, obviously you can't because it kind of ruins the colour piece if you go, and then I shook this person by the shoulders and went, why don't you think it's political? Um, <laughs> but it is kind of, would you say that was specific? Because obviously you've, you've gone to places which, you know, usually vote Labour, you've gone to marginal places and you've gone to a very sick Would you say that um, that was a commonality across all of those trips or was that more uh, specific to Banbury? I, th- I think it's a commonality from the trips that I've done, but let's not forget that I've been to mainly sort of conservative or swing areas so far. Um, you know, when I've been to places like Wigan for, for a long time ago for for previous on the road pieces before um, the 2015 election, I think it was, um, there is a bit more of a party political um, sort of party loyalty sense in in those kind of safe Labour seats, I think. I don't know if you've found the same thing when you've been out Yeah, no, I think that is definitely... Uh something I have encountered I'm really fascinated as to I do occasionally have this thing where you leave somewhere and you think gosh if I had x million pounds of grant money to give to an academic I would like them you know the Mm. thing I would like someone to do a proper study of is because now now in some cases Liverpool feels to me the Mm -hmm. most obvious example you have uh, a very strong civic culture and political awareness that you do not have I think it's fair to say in basically any other city in the in the UK but the thing that you have anywhere where you have a, a Labour council, uh, then you know you see when you see it in posters. I see it in my own area. 
is you have a council which is mostly explicitly going, we are having to do this because the government is cutting our funding, right? Every time Hackney Council um, wants to build um, housing, which I mean, it partly of course does because it has to justify why, why it's housing kind of such a small number of affordable units, but they kind of start with the, we aren't allowed to borrow, the government has cut our funding by X amount since 2010, as a result, um, this new development and this new school will have to be funded by um, by private sector house, housing. Um, and so I think it might, you know, it, it, well, I'm fascinated, yeah, obviously the answer is a bit of both, but I'm fascinated to know to what extent is it about a kind of civic culture of people being more aware of, of politics and being kind of more lefty with a small L? And to what extent is it because local government explicitly goes this is a result of these cuts from the Tories over there. Yeah, I think I think that is definitely a part of of why people in in some areas labor sort of majority areas have more of that sense that this is this yes there is that civic sense there which means that those kind of leaflets from the council or justifications from the council can actually work because they can tap into a mentality that's already there. Um but I think there is there is that consciousness that they've taken, you know, Tory West is much easier to, story to tell as well for Wigan Council. You know, Tory Westminster has taken our money away. And so, you know, the the market is half the size that it was here. And we don't have, you know, this, that and the other. And the, the high street is full of betting shops and, and you know, payday lenders. It's much easier to tell that story than if you're a Tory council or you're, you, you're not a Labour run council to say oh um the tories have taken our money away so we don't we can't pay for you because most of the time you are a tory um so it's a, a more difficult story to tell but i think it does spell trouble for the conservatives that there are these areas where people just are quietly realizing that something's been going on for quite some time going wrong for quite some time and even if they're not necessarily you know even if they're not necessarily your classic anti austerity activists they they are they are anti-austerity and they're, and they're experiencing it at the front line. This week's podcast has been recorded by me, Stephen Bush, which is why the sound quality is so bad, and produced and rescued by our excellent producer, Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons, and if you keep listening after the credits, you'll get to hear a special snippet of our culture podcast, The Back Half. Hello, I'm Tom Gatti. And I'm Kate Mossman. And you're about to hear a clip from The Back Half, the New Statesman's culture podcast every fortnight. Search iTunes for The Back Half or go online acast.com forward slash The Back Half. See you there. So Kate, on non-anniversary this week, 18 years ago... Is it 18 years? Yeah. Mm. 18 years ago this week, what happened? Gladiator hit the screens. This is not a non-specific, non-important cultural event because this was a huge cultural event. Although having said that, when I told Claire, my wife, that we were doing Gladiator, she was like, oh, great. Um, Can't wait. And and then uh, it it emerged that she thought I'd I was talking about gladiators. That's the true. TV series. Well, we could do that another week. Yeah. That's then, and that prefigured gladiator, yeah. didn't it? Um, we went. My entire floor at university went to see this at the Odeon, Tottenham Court Road. It was the first time I laid eyes on Whackin' Phoenix as the Elvis resembling, snivelling, incestuous, sadistic Commodus. Um, the uh, emperor who was thought to have brought about the fall of Rome or begun the fall of Rome. 
I found out that Jack Gleason modelled Joffrey in Game of Thrones on Wacken Phoenix. That makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant performance. I think his first line in it is he runs up to um, some battlefield where extremely bloody battle has just taken place, and he goes, "Am I too late, Father? Did I miss the battle?" <laughs> and it just goes downhill from there. It's absolutely brilliant. Apparently, Mel Gibson was offered the lead role of uh, uh, Maximus, Russell Crowe's, Russell Crowe's part, hmm. and turned it down because he said he was too old. Hmm. Thank God it wasn't Mel Gibson. Yeah, that would have been a totally different, different film. Yeah, oh, was that pre or post Braveheart? I get post Braveheart. I, I think it was just post Braveheart. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess maybe that made him the obvious choice for another sort of sword wielding historical figure. I've just got one sort of interesting fact about Gladiator. Shall I do it now? Or do, do it do now. You, yeah, which I discovered when I was. Um, this isn't. Other people know this. It's not knowledge that only I am privy to. But um, when I interviewed Nick Cave a few years ago, I was um, reading his novels and doing a bit of, bit of research. And um, I discovered that he had written a script for uh, a sequel to Gladiator, Gladiator 2. Russell Crowe had approached Nick Cave direct, wow. directly to write the sequel. And Nick Cave sort of said, "Yeah, I'm kind of interested. Didn't, but didn't didn't you die? You know, didn't you die at the <laughs> end? Did I miss the ending? Or, or, or wasn't that you dying?" Um, and he's like, uh, "Yeah, yeah, you you worked that out." So Cave wrote this. Uh, I mean, I I wonder whether there's a there's a version of this circulating somewhere in, in in Hollywood. But Cave wrote a version of this where the Maximus character goes down to purgatory and then the gods are are all dying out because this Christ figure has come come to earth wow. and the the uh, the many sort of greek and roman gods are um, are really suffering and so they send maximus down to kill christ oh my god <laughs> and his followers Is, was christ going to be played by mel gibson <laughs> cave wanted so was, this was going to be called gladiator 2 christ killer <laughs> no yes is that real yeah well this is what nick cave says anyway maybe he's having us all on but <laughs> russell Crowe's talked about it as well and ridley scott Crowe um, was sorry go on. then the bit i always remember for this is like so that's the kind of setup and then he becomes this sort of eternal like endlessly replicating warrior and so the last 20 minutes of cave script has him this maximus character just fighting in every war in history like up to vietnam Anyway, Ridley wow. Scott said it was it was a brilliant piece of work, but no one would ever. But no one would ever touch would ever it. Make it. So I, I found out that um, Russell Crowe was continually unhappy with the, uh, the screenplay by William Nicholson, and he kept rewriting parts of it. And he would strop off the set. And there was there's a famous line in there where he goes, "I will have my vengeance in this life or the next." And he initially refused to say it. Um, and he told William Nicholson, your lines are garbage, but I'm the greatest actor in the world and I can make even garbage sound good. And I thought, so what else did William Nicholson do? Because this obviously wasn't a very good relationship between the pair of them. William Nicholson did the screenplay for Les Miserables, which Russell, Russell Crowe was the lead in. So this, maybe they that... actually love each other. Yeah. This is just a kind of eternal fight between the two of them throughout their careers. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think he was particularly easy to get on with. I just want to watch it again now, but it is it's it's long, and I think that in now that I'm in the age of two screening or three screening, I'm not sure if I could uh, focus for the entire I think time. You focus, it's uh, yeah. The I I watched I rewatched the ending. I have to say, which is uh, his death scene, where it kind of goes into this sort of Instagram filter world. Yeah, <laughs> uh, of the the ancient a lot uh, of blue wheat fields of uh, of Elysium, where he goes and meets his uh, 
his wife and children. I think it invented the slow motion battle as well. Did it? Yeah, like the, the, the opening battle scene is in a field in right. Surrey that was set for deforestation and Surrey Council were just like, you can burn it if you want. So <laughs> they just slashed it and burned it. And for some reason it became blurry. So they then turned it into slow motion, but it was right. an accident or something. <laughs> and then you just see that everywhere now and you see the... They also, they also thought, and I've heard some rock star say this the other day, that the Colosseum was too small. So that's why they CGI'd it. They were disappointed by this puny you, little costume. I'll tell you where you saw that. Where was that? It, you saw it in a review that we published in the New Statesman magazine, which we both work on, <laughs> of the memoir of You God of the Wu Tang Clan. That and he was goes it. to the, he go, there's one bit where he goes to the Colosseum and he's just he just writes about how disappointing it was. He thought it was going to be massive, but it was more like a little league stadium. Well, he's not the only one because Ridley Scott was disappointed. <laughs> so that's why they build this massive one. And to this day, people who go to see the Colosseum are disappointed because they've seen Gladiator. They think it's going to look like that. Yeah, that, and he specifically referenced Gladiator. He's like, I, I was on this this Hollywood idea of what the Colosseum looked like. So it's done a lot of damage. It's lies. It's just post truth began with with gladiator in may 2000 um but i think we're probably both going to go away and re- mm. re-watch we had it. the soundtrack on cd hans zimmer dee, dee, yeah. Dee, dee, yeah yeah it's a good working soundtrack actually we often okay. talk about working music but yeah because it's it's sort of shapeless singing as well isn't it it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> happy non-anniversary at gladiator hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.